You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to wavelroom.com where you can read our articles, you can follow us on social media, where you can come and join us at one of our live events. Hello and welcome to this Wavel Room podcast, recorded in partnership with the Army Library Service. This podcast features Dr. Emily Ferris in a talk titled Forget About Hybrid Warfare, Why Listening to Russia Helps Us Predict Their Actions. Emily is a research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, specialising in Russian foreign policy towards the West and the Far East. She has a particular interest in Russian organised crime. Before joining RUSI, Emily worked at the London consultancy firm Control Risks, advising clients about conducting business in Russia and Eastern Europe. This talk was recorded on the 18th of July, 2019 in Andover. Enjoy. Thank you very much and thank you very much for having me. Um, I think my talk, as you can kind of see from the title, which was designed to be a little bit uh, gimmicky, um, it's sort of designed to debunk a couple of the myths and uh, misunderstandings that I think are a little bit pervasive about Russia, uh, especially in our official structures and a little bit in the military as well. Um, So today I'm hoping to kind of unpack some of the terminology that you might be used to talking about with Russia um, and to see if we can kind of understand a little bit more Russia's thinking, Russia's strategic thinking and foreign policy. So I think Russia's often discussed in terms of the threat. Um, You know, uh, how frightened should we be about Russia? Uh, What is it doing and what does it want? But I think we need to understand a little bit more why Russia does the things that it does and to understand the political processes that go on behind the scenes that might not be immediately obvious. And this can help to shed light on perhaps what Russia would do next and to understand how they arrived at these conclusions. So I have four main takeaways that I want to kind of unpack today. Uh, Two of those are domestic related and two are kind of foreign policy related. Um, The first is that we shouldn't dismiss what the Russian government says. Uh, It often warns about what it's going to do or how it's thinking and indeed what it thinks about the West. And we're often looking in the wrong place for our information. And so this leads to a lot of misunderstandings and talking past Russia instead of confronting the problem directly. And we would direct resources to the wrong places in doing that. The second thing to bear in mind is that there are things that are going on beyond Moscow and beyond Putin personally. So looking into Putin's deep psychology and his personal childhood is not always helpful in understanding how Russia works or how Russian foreign policy works. The third point Russian foreign policy is not expansionist in the way that we understand it. It's trying to restore Russia's status as a great power, yes. And we're not in a kind of new Cold War scenario. We need to stop thinking in this kind of Cold War mindset, which I think is blinding us to a lot of the realities of Russia. And then my final point is debunking to go you know, back to this snazzy title, myths about hybrid warfare, myths about the new Cold War, and understanding what Russian military concepts actually are and what they mean to them. And so how we can differentiate between things about the Soviet Union and things how Russia thinks today. So I'll start off with the domestic policy point. So how Russia works and how they see us. So essentially, for those of you who don't know, a very quick kind of uh, steam through Russian politics. We have Vladimir Putin, who is the president, Dmitry Medvedev, the prime minister, and the Duma, which is the Russian parliament. It's essentially a rubber stamp. It basically agrees with everything um, that that Putin orders. 
Um, there are four main parties, and the largest of these is the United Russia Party, which is controlled ultimately by Putin. And the other parties are known as the systemic opposition, which means that they are technically parties in their own right, but they don't really block any of the Kremlin's bills, and they basically vote in line with United Russia and Putin's ideology. So it's kind of important to know that this institution uh, has very little independence. So how Putin's administration works. He tends to give very broad foreign policy strokes and people around him implement them as they see fit. So he would give a broad aim, but ultimately the responsibility for implementing this falls on people like the regional government and local government um, and on businesses. So actually he has very little oversight running day-to-day -day things in Russia. And this I think is another misconception that people seem to think Putin has complete control over absolutely everything that happens in Russia. And this is just not the case. So this means actually that the way that Russia works is quite inefficient, if you think about it. It is an enormous country, and Putin cannot have oversight over everything that happens, which is why every year he has a program called Direct Line, where people phone in and ask him questions directly, as it sounds, uh, and he tries to solve them. They're usually things like regional problems or leaking roofs or terrible healthcare, and he says that he, he's going to make that a priority or whatever. But what this highlights is that the system as it stands does not work, and it requires the personal intervention of Putin at these day-to-day -day issues because he just doesn't have control over it, and there is such a lot of corruption in the system that so many things get lost. So there is actually a Russian word for this. It's called bardak, and it means <coughs> chaos. So this is how the Russian administration functions day to day. And this is why, to kind of draw a foreign policy parallel, this is why Russians themselves are so surprised that we in the West think that the Russian administration could have such a strategic capability to put somebody like Trump in the White House, because they know how their administration works. It has come to no surprise to the, to the Russians, you know, they, they uh, when they read our commentaries of how we think that um, Trump is the creation of Putin and his puppet and all this stuff, their responses is, you know, absolute um, derision because they know that their administration could not pull off such a feat. But the point is, we shouldn't dismiss the Russian government entirely. No, they're not very independent, but we shouldn't ignore what they say. Why? Because it ignores a lot of the discussions that go on in the Russian parliament. So Crimea is a very good example of this. Crimea was being discussed for months in advance in 2014. This was something that the, that the Russian Duma, the parliament, was talking about for ages. And had we paid a lot more attention to what was going on in the Russian parliament, then maybe we would not be so surprised by the things that Russia does. It's very easy to dismiss things as disinformation and propaganda, but sometimes we need to be able to look very clearly at what the Russian government is talking about. When we ask ourselves the question, what does Russia think of us? How does Russia see the West? And this is something we can go into in questions later if you'd like to as well. But I think the answers are very clear and we're not listening. Putin has been very clear about how he sees the West's view of Russia. And he thinks that Russia is ignored unless it's a threat and disrespected. And you, know, you could argue that it is not on us to uh, kind of feed uh, this person's ego and to try to make Russia feel respected. Um, but this is the view in Russia. This is how they are sort of caught between this um, schizophrenic idea of wanting the West's approval, but a huge amount of disillusionment with it. 
And Russia is very aware at the moment of its place in the global stage, that it is a power that is very much economically at least in decline, whereas its neighbor China is economically on the rise. And so Russia is increasingly cautious to try to prove itself internationally. And there you see Russia being increasingly aggressive and active in terms of its foreign policy. Having said all of that, this brings me to my second point about overthinking Putin, overthinking Moscow a little bit. There is a tendency in the West to look at Putin's personal life for clues about Russia's foreign policy. Um, and this has always struck me as being quite strange because if you think about it, his KGB career was more than 20 years ago. And I'm sure you would agree that judging somebody based on what they were doing 20 years ago um, creates uh, a much more confusing picture of what that person is like now. Uh, I'm not saying it's irrelevant to take into account that he was an intelligence agent, and I'm sure some of the tactics that he uses now uh, are very relevant, um, but ultimately delving into his psychology and what he learned on the streets of St. Petersburg, I could, a thousand times people have asked me how relevant this is, um, and I really don't feel that it is. And I feel that even more than that, it um, overshadows a lot of the other important institutions in Russia and a lot of the rest of Russia if you think about it, Moscow and Putin and the Kremlin are just a tiny part of a huge country. And regional governors, as I said before, when we talked about how the administration works, have a huge amount of autonomy for the day to day. And even in foreign policy terms, regional governors have a huge amount, huge role to play in terms of attracting investment from Japan and China. For example, they take the delegations around the Russian Far East and Siberia. They are the ones responsible for making Russia seem investment friendly. So actually, on a day to day level, there are a lot of other institutions that have a role to play and focusing too much on what Putin thinks or has for Brexit or what he thinks about us is to ignore a whole other group of players that have a serious stake in Russia's future. So there are lots of reasons why this is a problem, but if you take business, so Russia's energy infrastructure, all its pipelines were set up for European clients. Um, but there's very little investment that's gone into the Far East and Eastern Siberia. This is really interesting really bad infrastructure, terrible roads and railways, inability to move cargo across the country. All of these are really serious vulnerabilities that Russia has. And while we focus on things like how many tanks Russia has and how many nuclear submarines they're able to build, there's actually a lot of very serious systemic weaknesses that we're not looking at because we're so focused on the European part of Russia and gas pipelines. Actually, Problems with moving stuff around the far east of Russia, terrible port systems, the inability to use the Arctic Channel because Russia does not have enough ports to do this, um, the bad economy, which means that uh, money for shipbuilding has been massively cut. All of this is a very serious economic and systemic weakness in Russia that I don't think there is enough discussion about. So if we kind of take Putin and Moscow aside and you look at the rest of the country, there are some really interesting changes happening. And I think if there is going to be political change in Russia, I'm not sure it's necessarily going to come from Moscow. If you look at things that go on in Siberia and the Far East, which I like to do, you can see that the United Russia Party, Putin's party, is losing its social contract with the people. And it's very interesting how this plays out. The, you're noticing that on regional and local councils, which do have quite a bit of power because they decide the day-to-day, 
you're seeing people voting for the systemic opposition. So they'll vote for the Liberal Democrats, which are neither liberal nor democratic, but they are part of the Duma. They're voting for a party called Adjust Russia, which is also in, in the Duma. Why? They know that these parties basically vote along Kremlin lines. It's a really bizarre thing to do, but it's increasingly happening. And it's a protest vote because people are saying we've had enough of United Russia. We know that they can't guarantee basic goods and services. So why should we put our trust in this party? And Putin for years has modeled himself as the kind of person that can create this kind of stability and can guarantee that your wages will be paid. And that's starting to wear quite thin and people's patience is starting to wane. So I think it's pretty interesting. So third point on Russian foreign policy. There's a lot of misconceptions about Russia, and one of the most famous ones that people always talk about is a State of the Nation address that Putin gave in 2005, in which he said something like, the breakup of the Soviet Union was the biggest catastrophe of the 20th century. And this is something that is always rolled out when people try to ask about Putin's uh, foreign policy objectives and how he views countries close to Russia. In the West, we understood this as Russia wants to recreate the Soviet empire. This is what all its foreign policy goals are working towards with Putin as the leader. And so many kind of foreign policy analysts said, okay, Russian foreign policy is expansionist and it's looking to take over all the other countries nearby. I've been asked many times which country is next on Russia's agenda. But as with all of these things, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And there's lots of different answers. The point is that Putin has never tried to restore the Soviet empire as it was. So yes, there is that nostalgia for the Soviet empire among a lot of people of that generation, particularly those who remember when uh, the state looked after you and guaranteed you an education and healthcare and all of that. But what Putin was trying to say in 2005, four years into his leadership, was to emphasize the difficulties that the Russian people had experienced when the Soviet empire broke up in 91. And it's very difficult to understand, I think, the mindset of being in control of a huge swathe of territory, which suddenly was broken up into much smaller republics, and the entire sense of identity, of Russian identity, came under question. <coughs> and in many ways, I think today, people have not got over it. Um, you could argue the same about other countries, us as well, that have lost our empires. I think there is still a sense of loss and in Russia, this is very recent and perhaps understandable that they haven't quite got over it yet. One of the important points to remember about Russian foreign policy, as we know, they don't want the Soviet empire. What do they want? A lot of Russia's successes in terms of things it's been able to achieve abroad have not necessarily been the result of a mastermind or an amazing strategy that was very calculated. It's often the result of failings of other countries and opportunism. So I'm not really of the view that there is a huge grand Russia strategy that Putin sits at the center of and controls everything. There's plenty of different examples of how this isn't the case. For example, uh, the hack of the American elections, you had two different intelligence agencies hacking it at the same time, uh, neither of whom knew they were there. Um, so you have intelligence agencies in competition for resources, for attention from Putin, um, all running missions at the same time, often overlapping ones. A lot of the intelligence agencies' remits are very similar. Um, and this creates a huge amount of confusion. And from that conclusion, from that confusion, sorry, people draw the conclusion that Russia is absolutely in control of every political situation. And 
in a way, Russia has won this battle because now everybody sees the hand of Russia in everything, from Brexit to Trump, every election you could think of. You know, perhaps Russia has an interest in the Mexican elections, I don't really know. But they do give off the impression that they are able to call a huge amount of resources to disrupt processes all over the world. And to be uh, feared in that way is a major foreign policy goal. The way that you achieve that, unclear. Russia takes opportunities when states are weaker, when there are blind spots. But what we don't hear about are a lot of the failures of Russian strategy towards this. We don't hear about how many times Russia tried to, um, I don't know, influence the Lithuanian border security police and failed. Obviously, we don't hear about that. We hear only about the successes, which contributes to the idea of Russia being a very frightening state that has control over almost everything globally. One of the main problems and preoccupations of Russia actually is making sure that countries nearby remain loyal to Russia and avoiding what Russia calls color revolutions. I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but essentially it's forced regime change. Um, along the lines of what happened in Ukraine in 2013 and 2014, when a pro-Russian leader is ousted in favor of a pro-European or pro-Western one. Um, so Russia is very cautious of this kind of overthrowing of power in a dramatic way. And this is a very major preoccupation for them. So I was going to talk a little bit about the Baltic states and Crimea, because I think those are probably a bit more interesting. Um, but the reason that they're important is because they are a very interesting aspect of Russian foreign policy. And I don't want to talk about all the countries where Russia has an interest, but these ones are particularly salient, I think. So if we take Crimea as a case study, Russia always considered Crimea to be a part of Russia. This is their mindset. This is what they believe since 1956 when it was handed over. Uh, to the Ukrainians, they say as a gift. Russia has always had a military presence there. There have always been a very large Russian population there. As far as Russia is concerned, this was fair game. But Eastern Ukraine was slightly different when Russia military, militarily intervened in Eastern Ukraine. This was a miscalculation. Russia sought to take advantage of the chaos that was going on as Ukraine overthrew its leader and did not end, they did not want to end up in a long-term conflict bogged down in Eastern Ukraine, wasting a huge amount of arms and resources that they now cannot get out of gracefully. And a lot of the things that Russia is doing now is to try to extricate itself as gracefully as possible from this conflict without losing the territory that it has. Um, but in my view, Eastern Ukraine was um, an opportunistic uh, act that now the Russians are very sorry about and they can't move. But then you look at the Baltic states and Russia's relationship to them. This is something that I've been asked a lot when speaking to people from NATO, obviously, because of the rotating battalions. Um, what are Russia's designs on the Baltic states? Could we see another Crimea scenario? But we need to think about, before we say, OK, the Suwalki gap, Russia could technically block this, and then we could have a whole you know, annexation of the Baltic states. You have to think about why Russia would do such a thing. And Russia does have a kind of cost-benefit analysis when it decides to, you know, Crimea and the Baltic states are two very different things. And Russia's relationship to the Baltic states is really very different as well. Uh, I'm not sure that Russia has totally accepted that the Baltic states are a part of Europe. It still sees the Baltic states as 
part of its sphere of influence. But there are many ways that Russia can exert influence over these countries without something as clumsy as a military takeover. So, for example, they are part of the EU. They have NATO membership. Russia is very curious about their defense capabilities. That's why you see a lot of uh, Russian planes buzzing, um, flying very close to their airspace to see how quickly they respond. Um, yes, it's aggressive, but it's also to see how quickly they'll respond. So Russia can note, you know, yes, that was quite quick. Fine. It's information. There are, you know, I'm sure you've heard about disinformation campaigns, um, Russian media. The Russian media has a huge reach in the Baltic states where a lot of people speak Russian, especially in places like Estonia and Latvia, less so in Lithuania. Uh, but it's not necessarily the case that when Russia uh, puts out sort of media in the Russian language that it's pro-Russian content. It can be anti-NATO content. It can be uh, both at the same time to create a sense of chaos so people don't really know what's true and it makes you question everything. Um, but Russia doesn't even need to invade the Baltic states. Yes, it, you know, I suppose it could do, but if you think about it, Russia already has such a huge amount of influence over these countries, both in terms of business, in terms of politics, um, in the media, and to some extent over the ethnic Russian population that live there. So, for example, you take the gas market um, and the electricity market. Uh, the Baltic states have been trying to move away from the Brel system. So this is uh, Belarus, Russia, uh, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia. It was a Soviet-era electrical grid that links all of the five states together. Uh, now places like Estonia are trying to rely on Norway and Poland for electricity. It's a slow process. It takes a long time. Um, they still, if you go to these places and you ask how reliant they are on Russia for energy, they will say not at all. But that's not the case. In Latvia, one of the major gas corporations is still owned um, by Gazprom, which is the state-controlled entity in Russia, incredibly powerful. Um, so Russia has a lot of these ways of, of influencing the Baltic states in a much more subtle way than kind of a land takeover or something like that. So now just to move on to my final point, and then I will let you ask questions. But the problem with things like hybrid warfare as per the title. So I want to try to debunk two myths. One is the hybrid warfare point, and the other is the new Cold War concept. If we get the hybrid warfare idea wrong, then we are approaching Russia the wrong way. In 2013, the chief of staff, Valery Garasimov, gave a speech on how using things like propaganda and subversion could be a part of conflict. Fine. This happened just before Crimea and just before Eastern Ukraine. So the conclusion was drawn that Gerasimov was talking about an entirely new way of doing warfare. Actually, he was talking about the Arab Spring, which had just happened, and color revolutions, the idea of regime change, which was happening in Ukraine at the time. Regime change in pro-Russian countries, which Russia sees as often orchestrated by the West and particularly the Americas. You have to think, hybrid warfare there is no Russian word for this. And that tells you a lot about whether this is a part of Russian military thinking or strategic thinking at all. They use the word translated into Russian, Gibridna Vaina. I mean, that's not a natural Russian word at all. They have taken it from what we have called it. So 
when the Russians don't have their own term for a military strategy, that is a really big sign that it, this is not from them. This is what we have mapped this onto the Russians. And this is a very big problem because now the, the idea of hybrid warfare is not new. And what Russia is doing is not new, which is chucking a whole bunch of resources at a problem. Yes, military, yes, boots on the ground, um, disinformation, propaganda, whatever have you. But Russia has been doing this for years. And frankly, so have we. So this should not come as a kind of new concept to show that Russia is doing anything really fundamentally different. So I think this approach uh, can kind of lead us down the wrong path in the way that we look at Russia. New Cold War. I really hate this term. Um, it's really unhelpful for three ways, actually. But particularly, it's a, a very US defense word that I've come across a lot. Um, and there are quite a lot of fundamental dangers involved when you call what's happening between the West and Russia a new Cold War. Okay, number one. There are no more competing ideologies. We're not living in an age of socialism and communism versus capitalism. There was a very clear division of that during the Cold War. But today's Russia is completely different. It doesn't have the same kind of ideology of this sort of Marxism or the sort of conquest that they had during the Cold War. And there is no grand strategy, as I've said, to promote the idea of communism or Sovietism or whatever abroad. And Russia's aims in different countries are different. What Russia wants from the Central African Republic is not the same as what Russia wants from Georgia. Russia's aims in different countries can be economic, they can be business, they could be political, but ideological, they are not. And you could argue that there is a sense of Putinism and there is a cult of personality and all of this stuff, but it is definitely not the same as an, as an overarching kind of uh, almost religious, or well, not perhaps if it's Marxism, but you know, the, the Marxist ideology does not apply to today's Russia. The second point, Russia is now plugged in to the global sphere. Uh, we're living in an age where Russia is financially bound up with the rest of the world. It's a global player. It's interconnected. It's on the market. Its companies have a presence in the UK. British companies work in Russia. Um, Russia has veto powers on the UN Security Council. Uh, we need its support when we look at North Korea, when we look at Iran. And things that Russia does domestically have global resonance. So you look at, uh, what was it, April 2018, when some sanctions were introduced on Russia, as they are periodically. And a businessman called Oleg Deripaska was sanctioned specifically. Uh, he's very close to Putin, although not as close as he used to be. They've fallen out. Um, and his company, Rusal, is an aluminium <laughs> manufacturer. And they account for something like 8% of all of global resources of aluminium, which is huge. Uh, they, I believe they're on the London stock market as well. They had a huge presence in Ireland. And the second that he was sanctioned, the aluminium prices went crazy. And this shows you that things that happen in Russia do not happen in a vacuum. They affect us as well. They affected the people in Ireland who no longer had jobs to go to. So we can't keep thinking about Russia in isolation as a country that is not part of the international system, much as Putin would want to overthrow the new world order and all of this. The third problem with this Cold War thinking, it means that we don't look at our own policies enough on Russia. It means that we still have the Cold War mindset and we're still approaching Russia as we did 30, 40 years ago. And it doesn't take into account changes. 
For example, NATO, since the Obama era, promised Ukraine and Georgia that at some point they would have NATO membership. And what this did was uh, make Russia very nervous that countries close to it would be NATO members. Uh, it basically trained Russia's gaze onto these countries to make sure that that didn't happen. And Russia was immediately on the defensive to make sure that they did not become a NATO member. And I think we have not been honest enough with Ukraine and Georgia to say that their, their membership is likely, unlikely, whatever it is. It's kind of been left in limbo. But this approach, this kind of way of... Uh, <laughs> This way of describing things as if Russia is still the same as it was 30, 40 years ago is really unhelpful in trying to understand how Russia thinks now. So, to end, the final example that I'm going to give of fundamental misunderstanding is this misinterpreted <coughs> quote from Churchill in 39 that I'm sure many of you have heard if you've ever read anything about you know, uh, Russia or during the war. He said, Russian actions were a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And this is a phrase that is often the beginning of every article that I see about Russia and trying to understand what Russia wants or Russia thinks. But what Churchill actually went on to say was that there is a key to understanding Russia's actions and why they do what they do, and that is national interest, which Russia will prioritize at all costs. Well, obviously he was talking about Nazi Germany at the time when British interests very much kind of coincided with Russia's. But this is actually still quite relevant because it is in our interests to try to understand what Russia wants so that we can try to think about what they'll do next and where they're going. But this obviously leads to the question, what are Russia's interests? What are these, this national goal that it's trying to aspire to? Um, after Crimea, this was something that a lot of news outlets seized on trying to understand Putin's end game. You know, where, where's this going? But it doesn't take into account what Russia is. Russia is more than Putin. It's more than Moscow. There are a lot of groups that have a stake in Russia's future. So what do the Russian people want, for example? You know, they want what everybody wants the world over. They want good services. They want uh, healthcare. They want to be able to send their kids to school and drive on normal roads. The political elite, what do they want? They're another huge, important stake in Russia. They're involved in business. What do they want? Okay, they're involved in organized crime as well, perhaps, but they want to be a good partner. They want people to buy their services. They want oil transfers. They want an end to the sanctions, and they want a Russian business environment that is favorable to Westerners. So all of these groups, Putin as well, have different stakes in Russia's future after 2024, which is when Putin, I think, will step down. The question is going to be, what will that look like? after 2024, we can discuss it if you like. Um, but I think all of these groups, aside from Putin, are going to become much more important. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Wavel Room is free to use, but it's not free to produce. So head down to wavelroom.com and maybe donate us some money so that we can keep going and keep creating that content that we know you love. Thank you. <laughs>